All right, let's go to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a, a copy of your own, don't have a Bible of your own, uh, we'll put the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, if you're watching online, we'll put the text up on your screen when we get to that part of our time together. Uh, if you don't own a copy of God's Word that you can call your very own, we like giving those away around here. Uh, we, we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, and uh, if I had more time today, I'd tell you more about it, um, but we got to get moving. All right, so uh, we, we kicked off our, our time last week uh, with uh, a new thing, uh, and so uh, we're taking a break from our Corinthian series for a couple of months, we think. Uh, we'll turn back to it in June, Lord willing. Uh, but for right now, uh, we're wanting to kind of lean into our inner child a little bit. Um, we're, take, we're talking, uh, taking all the, uh, all the things that we do in a, in a normal gathering of God's people, in a normal thing that we would call a church service. And, and, and like what seems to happen in my house on a regular basis these days, we're just asking the why question. Right? Uh, instead, of, instead of just assuming that that's what we are supposed to do and ought to do and, and how we should be doing it, we're, we're giving it the but why treatment, right? And so why do we do this instead of that? And why do we do that thing in this particular way? And so we're just getting curious about it, uh, uh, asking real critical questions, I guess, and you want to call it that. There, there are some things in life that, that we do for no other reason but because, well, that was the way it was handed down to us. You can probably rattle off a list of things that you've, you always do or you always do a specific way uh, just because that's the way you were taught to do it, all right? Um, and, and we can call it tradition. We can call it a, an absent-minded compliance if you want to. But, but for whatever reason, there are some things that we've never bothered to actually stop and process through, actually ask the question, why do, why, why do we do this? Why, why do we do this like this? But then there are other things in life that if you stop long enough and, and I think think about them critically enough and honestly enough, I think you discover that there's some incredibly obvious reasons for why we do it and, and maybe even a really, really smart reason for why we do it in a particular way. And even though you were oblivious to that reason before, now that you've actually taken the time to stop and think through it, it has forever affected the way you see that thing, forever affected the way you approach that thing, and you couldn't possibly dream of doing it any other way. And I think the stuff that we do in a normal church gathering often falls into that very category. I think it often uh, gets exactly that treatment. It's stuff that we've been handed down, never actually spent any time asking the why question. But if we were to honestly stop and ask the why question, it might become so obvious to us why we do it that we actually love it and could never imagine doing it any other way. But if you remember... We kicked things off last week by giving ourselves uh, some guardrails, we call them, some measuring sticks to work with. We threw, we threw out a couple of, of, of rather-thans uh, to kind of help protect us and ensure that our efforts to, to pick things apart throughout this series uh, ended up landing in a, in a healthy place. And uh, it's one thing to, to, to have a reason for doing something. It's another thing entirely to, to have a reason that actually leads to people's health and growth and, and, and maturity. And so uh, we don't want to ask critical questions just for the sake of asking critical questions. The world does that. We don't do that. Right? Uh, we, we need something to come home to ultimately. And so we came up with a couple of measuring sticks, and I think we got uh, both of them here. The first one is this. Uh, our reasons for doing something need to originate in and be ultimately shaped by the Bible rather than pragmatism. 
human reason and the, the option that, that gets us results in the quickest moment and the immediate result, right? like, that, that's sometimes a good and wise thing. That, that's not out of bounds for God's people. In fact, the Bible is incredibly practical a lot of the time. So human reason and, and the option that gets us results in the moment, that, that's sometimes the good thing to do. Right? But then again, sometimes it's, it's not at all the best thing to do. Sometimes the Bible's ideal that it calls us to chase after is incredibly counterintuitive. And it takes a wise heart and a prayerful attitude, I think, to keep our eyes open and to see where those two pathways diverge and then act accordingly. Our hearts are fickle, right? Or at least mine is. I don't know about you, but I often find myself, myself in a place where, where I've chased after something that I was so certain was the right option. And then I got to the other side of that choice, and I figured out that that wasn't the right option at all. That wasn't the best thing for me. So while there are certainly some things in the pro column when it comes to, to temporary victories, that's, that's, that's clear and obvious. There are certainly good things about them. We're going to hold to the posture that it's always going to lead to our greatest good to align ourselves with what the Bible says will matter 10,000 years from now rather than 10 minutes from now. Who cares if it gets us the 10-minute victory or the 10-hour victory or even the 10-year victory if it's not going to matter 10,000 years from now? So we want to chase after what is eternal. But there was a second measuring stick that we threw out last week, and it was this. Our actions need to be measured by what builds up the body rather than what seeks to expand the body. In other words, what we do here in this room when we gather together on a Sunday morning is intended first and foremost to strengthen the church family we have rather than trying to chase after and be attracted to the mythological sensitive seeker. All right. Um, evangelism is an, is an incredibly important part of what we do as a church. It's an incredibly precious responsibility that Jesus has given to us. But what we do in this room when we gather together isn't for the lost person. We have other things that reach out to the lost person. But what we do in this room isn't for them. It's for the family. Much in the same way that if you were to invite some stranger into your house, you would show them incredible hospitality, but they're not, they're not getting a vote in the family meeting, right? There's a family component, and they welcome strangers in and invite strangers in, but at the same time, there's something there for the family. And Jesus can and does often use the attractive example of the church to win people to himself, but he does so, I think, by showing off how otherworldly and unlike anything else that anybody can find anywhere else, this family actually is. When people stumble into this place, invited or random, whatever it is, when they see the example of God's family doing what God's family does, they go, oh, I like that. I think I want a little bit more of that. We can say it this way, the non-believer is a welcome witness to what's going on here. Hospitality is a core identity of who we are, but the non-believer is not someone that we're hoping to sell on the idea of the gospel. It's not someone... We're hoping to sell on the idea of our church. In his goodness, God has made what we do here beautiful and appealing, and all we have to do is do it. it kind of takes the pressure off of us to try so hard, right? So last week, we took those two measuring sticks, and we, 
we talked about gathering in and of itself, right? We, we asked the but why, but why question to, to just the idea of getting together in one space. Like, is that even something that God's people need to do? Or is that just kind of this side benefit that, that goes on? And, and so uh, not only did we discover that gathering is a fundamental component of what a church actually is, but we also took the next step beyond that and added three more really important reasons to the pile for why we gather. The first was, was that God uses the gathering to grow us and produce ministry through us as a singular body. We, we get to do more for the kingdom combined together than we can do on our own. All right? The third, uh, the second, excuse me, uh, the second reason was that God uses the gathering to give us more of himself than we could ever experience apart from the body. That if we really want more of Jesus, then we press into the, the church family that he has given us instead of going the monk route. All right, we actually press into community and God dwells within the corporate gathering of his people. And the third reason we threw out last week was that God uses the gathered body uh, to declare the advancement and ultimate victory of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, when Jesus' people gather as the church, when they, when they gather in his name, we do so with his authority. So now that we know why we gather, we're on to week two, right? But, so, so what gets our but why treatment this week. Well, you might have put the pieces together this morning, but I think we need to talk about all the scripture we got, <laughs> right? Did we kind of go overkill today? Anybody brave enough to say yes? <laughs> we read it a bunch. We devote a, the majority of our time to it on a Sunday morning, preaching the Bible. Like, like sometimes I talk for almost an hour. Who does that anymore? Like, like, we live in a world that's full of sound bites and tweets. Who does the 50-minute monologue these days? Why, why would we spend so much time and attention proclaiming what's written in some dusty old book, right? And he used the word proclaiming on purpose because, like, we read it and we preach it, right? You're never going to walk in here on a Sunday morning and find a discussion about the Bible. There'll be no panel discussion. Bunch of people with microphones giving their opinion about things. At least not on a Sunday morning. You're never going to walk into the Sunday gathering of Nashville Baptist Church expecting to find a, a, a debate or, or a TED talk, right? Like, like, that's not how we roll here. We spend an awfully large amount of time declaring God's word. Almost, you know, as if it were an edict from a king being declared by his representatives, right? heralded by his reps. And so right out of the gate, we kind of have our first little bit of, of an answer for the but why question, don't we? Like, like one of the reasons we proclaim God's word here is, is that it's an extension of what we, we talked about last week. We speak on Jesus' behalf. And so, I mean, follow the logic here. If we're going to do that faithfully, we probably ought to quote the guy, Right? Probably ought to say what he said, how he said it. It makes sense that way. But while that's an incredibly important piece of what we're doing here, we, we kind of talked about that last week. So I think we can take a step beyond that this week because I, I, think, I think it's not just declaring Jesus' word with his authority. I, I think the regular proclamation of God's word, the weekend and week out preaching and reading of the scriptures is actually something we maybe even desperately need. 
as in can't survive without it need. Something that if we see it correctly, I think becomes something that we actually want as much of as we can possibly get. In order to prove my point on that, we got to go to 2 Timothy. So 2 Timothy is a, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And it's the second letter we have that was written to him. Ergo, 2 Timothy. Brilliant like that. All right, so... Timothy is a disciple of Paul's. Uh, they have a deep, deep relationship. Uh, and Timothy has been instrumental in following in Paul's footsteps. A, a couple of times throughout the New Testament, Timothy is either uh, left somewhere or he is sent somewhere to go do what Paul couldn't be there in person to do. All right? uh, and so case in point, Timothy is receiving this letter uh, while he is leading things at the church in Ephesus. He's kind of like the pastor there, lead elder there, if you want to call him that. All right? And so Timothy is in Ephesus, we think, when he's receiving this letter. And while that sounds really exotic and all, uh, Paul's setting is slightly more interesting. He's in prison in Rome. Now, we, we've done walked through a number of Paul's letters here. We're kind of used to Paul being in prison. But normally when we talk about Paul being in prison, we're talking about him being under house arrest in Rome. Right? That's what's happening at the, the end of, of uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28. That's, that's like a cushy house arrest kind of deal. He's got people that can come and see him. Like he's stuck there, but all kinds of people are visiting him. The church is exploding. He writes the letters of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon while he's under house arrest in Rome. Right? But we think at, at, at the after Acts 28 ends, right? and so after that's kind of wrapped up and they're doing other things, we think after that time, he eventually gets out of jail or house arrest or whatever you want to call it. And he goes on what we think is his fourth missionary journey. And then within a few years, he's arrested again. But this time, instead of the cushy house arrest, he's being held in the, the very famous Mamertine prison and He's awaiting his execution. This isn't, Paul, you need to stop doing that or we're not going to let you be free. This is, no, we're going to put you to death for this. It's a real deal this time. Paul knows it, and listen, Timothy knows it. So that means that 2 Timothy is the last thing written by the Apostle Paul. And it's written as Paul's kind of last chance to give advice to a young man following in his footsteps. You think there's some weightiness to this letter? I think there's some urgency to this letter. So by the time you get to chapter 3, there's this pretty somber tone running all the way through it. But by the time you get to chapter 3, Paul is spelling out for Timothy the falling away from faithfulness that Timothy ought to expect to see in his next day. And so it's stuff that's not all that fun to read because like, if you read it with a mind towards, hey, that's a little bit like our culture, you discover that that's a whole lot like our culture. It says that people will be lovers of self. We don't have that here, do we? They'll be unappeasable. No matter what you do, you can't make them happy. They'll always be learning, but never to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, he tells Timothy. Yeah, we got a lot of that in our day. It's a pretty frustrating thing to sit there and watch that play out in a community you love and you want to see you follow the truth. It's pretty frustrating. In fact, I might even call it demoralizing. Kind of kicks the wind out of you. 
cause you to want to throw in the towel and, and walk away. The first half of chapter 3 leaves you thinking, everything's lost. Why are we, why are we still trying? If it's not going to play out like we hope it's going to play out, why, why, what are we still doing here? There's not a lot to put your hope in. But an interesting turn happens in verse 10, and that's where I want to kick things off this morning. 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 10. Paul says this, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, verse 11, uh, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which which persecutions I endured, yet from, them all the Lord, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Let's call time out there. Hey, so, so Paul says, Hey, Timothy, you're familiar with the game. You know how this works. You know what awaits God's people in a world, in, a, in the world when they, when they try to walk in faithfulness. You know what they ought to expect. Timothy has traveled with Paul. He had seen a lot of the same persecution that Paul had seen and faced firsthand. But it actually goes a good bit deeper than this. Timothy is from Lystra. Right? Uh, we're told in, in Acts 14 that, that Paul goes there, he preaches the gospel, and makes, quote, many disciples in the city, whatever that means. Probably a big number. Right? The Jews, they don't like that. So what do they do? They stone Paul as a reward for his efforts. In fact, they stone him so thoroughly, he's beaten so badly that the people throwing rocks at him thinks he's already dead, and they give up. So they drag his body out of the city. And Luke tells us, Luke tells us that all these brand new Christians, they gather around Paul. Paul hops up and he goes back to work. He just goes back into the city. We have a pretty good reason to believe that Timothy's mother and grandmother when they were in that very first group of disciples that were made at Lystra. Fast forward to Acts chapter 16. Paul has left and has now come back to Lystra. And they present Timothy to him, a young man. And he's kind of this up-and-comer, and they think he's, got some, think he's got the goods to travel and do what Paul does. So Paul takes him with him. Timothy is very aware of how this works. There, there are no pie-in-the-sky aspirations in this kid. He didn't, he didn't start out in Acts 16 with unrealistic expectations of what uh, the life of a, procl- a proclaimer of the gospel is going to face. He didn't walk into this thinking, you know what, I think I'm going to make a, a nice little career out of being the pastor. He, he knows what happens even in his very own hometown when people stand up and faithfully proclaim God's word. He knows. So you'd think, I'm just spitballing here, but you'd think that those that were getting their tail kicked would maybe, I don't know, wise up and change the way they do things. Right? 
you think they'd finally get smart enough to adjust the message just a little bit? To, you know, just stay under the radar, not change too much, but you know, just kind of stay underneath everybody's attention, not stir things too much. And, and, and let's be honest, if anybody's earned that opportunity, it's the Apostle Paul, right? You know, think about the, the things he's faced and the, the times he's been beaten. Like surely if anybody on the planet has gotten to the place where they can finally take their foot off the gas and say, you know what, I'm going to rest this one out, it's Paul, right? Right? I mean, isn't it kind of senseless for him to die? Sure, surely. I mean, if, if he compromised just a little bit, not only would life get a little easier for him, but like, wouldn't he be around much longer to strengthen the church? Like, maybe there's a, maybe there's a strategy play in here. We, we want to we wanna protect Paul, so maybe... Come on, Paul, just relax a little bit. And the more I talk, the more obvious the answer is, right? We, we, it's incredibly ridiculous questions, but I don't know, maybe we can let Paul answer for himself in verse 14. He says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, so apparently uh, uh, the reading and correct preaching of God's word here, and we're choosing to, to use the, the collective term proclaiming, right? The, the reading and correct preaching of God's word, uh, proclaiming, the the. Apparently, the proclaiming God's word is not something that God's people do merely as some kind of holy responsibility. What did Paul say? I think we see here that the proclaiming of God's word actually creates God's people. If you're thinking to yourself, that's a, that's a really bold thing to claim. The answer is, yeah, you're right, but it's not the first time the Bible makes that claim. Paul says something very similar in Romans 10. An earlier letter he wrote says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Peter also says something similar to that in 1 Peter 1.23. He says, since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable, comma, through, uh, through the living and abiding word of God. So you got Peter and Paul both throwing out this incredibly deep claim that, that, that God's word actually creates God's people. So what's this apostolic tag team telling us? That it's through the scriptures that we come to know the depth of our sin and our separation from God. The scriptures do that. That it's through the scriptures that we learn of the Father sending the Son to be a perfect sacrifice for sin. The scriptures tell us that. It's through the scriptures that we learn of the call to repentance and our need to place our faith in Jesus alone for salvation. It's the scriptures that teach us that. And they're telling us that the, the scriptures are where we find and where we learn that it is promised that Jesus' work on our behalf is forever sufficient to reconcile us completely to God. The scriptures tell us that. Listen. Without the scriptures, there is no good news to share. There's no good news for us to trust in. So God uses the scriptures to produce in our hearts the very faith that saves us. 
The very pattern, the regular pattern of proclaiming God's word, the week in and week out, reading and preaching, practice in the local church is an integral part of God's plan to redeem a people for himself. It's the tool he uses. When when someone becomes a Christian, it's God's spirit-filled word doing the work, not the presenter. Doesn't matter how fancy your rhetoric is and doesn't matter how smooth of a talker you are, God's work is the one that does the heavy lifting. God's word is the one that changes the heart. As a side note, this is for free. This is also why you should always use the Bible whenever you're trying to share the gospel with somebody. Oh, but they don't, they don't believe the Bible yet. They don't respect the Bible. Who cares? Who cares? Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hey, can you do that? Do the words coming out of your mouth have that same effect? Like, I'm pretty good at talking. I don't have that same effect. I can't do that. Like, imagine the scenario. Imagine pulling out a sword, a giant sword, at a fist fight. And your opponent going, I don't think we should use swords. I don't think that's actually effective. Use your sword. <laughs> you win. You, you, no, you let, word, you let God's word speak. You let, it, you let it speak, and God will do whatever he wants with it. It's true of evangelism. It's true with the regular rhythms of the church. When a church is properly ordered, God's word, the giant sword, gets center stage. We don't need to win anybody over with how we do this and how we do that. We let God's word breathe. And God does what he will do. Yes and amen. We continually proclaim his word because we want to be faithful representatives of our king. But at the very same time, we also continually proclaim his word because it is his word that he uses to create us as his people. But we're just getting started. We're not done. We're just getting to the juicy stuff. Verse 16. Paul says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, uh, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Hey, look, it's the two verses that everybody knows in 2 Timothy, right? If you've spent any amount of time at all in church, you're familiar with this, these couple of verses. You likely sat under probably a lot of teaching about it. And so, so, so what's Paul saying here? Well, most expositions of those, this text, these two verses, start out by focusing on the phrase, breathed out by God, right? And what a phrase that is. That phrase is two Greek words into singular words that have been smashed together to form a new compound word that doesn't exist anywhere else. All right? um, theo, meaning God, and, and pneumos, neustos, I guess. Neustos, which is a word that gives us a range of words, meaning spirit, inspired, uh, breathe, wind. So Paul smashes these two words together, which don't exist anywhere else in ancient Greek literature. And I think he does so to make a point, right? Like, like Paul's coining new terms here or just or kind of ignoring grammar rules here because he wants to make sure that these two words don't get separated. All right? I think he does so to show that, that what we call Scripture because of the very words of God. 
Yes, the personalities and tendencies of the human authors are there as well. God used them as a testimony both to God's bigness and his goodness that he would use such a wide range, such a broad stable of human authors, voices, and styles. But God breathed through his numerous human writers to give us the exact words he intended to give us. And because of that reality, Every single word of it is trustworthy. And every single word of it is given for our good. And we can say it the same way Paul does. It's profitable. All Scripture is profitable for us. Well, profitable in what ways? Well, Paul lists four things, right? Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And while those four things probably seem in our modern world as you know, interchangeable things to say the same stuff. They're actually four very nuanced tools for actively maturing God's people. Uh, teaching one is probably the one that's the most easy for us to wrap our heads around. Teaching is pretty straightforward. It's the imparting of knowledge. It's the removal of ignorance, right? You can't say you didn't know because you were told. That's, that's teaching there. Reproof, though, is a word that we don't use much in our culture anymore, uh, but it's simply a word of criticism. Right? A, correct, uh, a word uh, of censorship and of saying, no, that's not right. And that's, that's reproof. Uh, but criticism, uh, criticism is a complicated thing in our world. All right? uh, the biblical understanding of criticism always wants good for the one being criticized not the way it tends to play out in our culture. Right? Um, we, we, we do have criticism in our world, but it's almost always rooted in a desire to tear others down rather than to build others up. Right? And so biblical criticism, very difficult, very different thing. Right? So we've got teaching, we've got reproof. And third up, Paul says that all scripture has been given to us for correction. Right? Uh, that, he's using that in the literal sense there for actually correcting the course, right? uh, to adjusting what we're aiming at. And then finally, Oh, probably my favorite one. He says that God has given us all of Scripture for training in righteousness. In other words, for disciplining ourselves to walk as God would call us to walk. It carries the idea of steadily exercising the gift of righteousness that God has seen fit to give to you. Work it out. Continue to build it up and strengthen it and make it a really good, strong righteousness. Get that righteousness in shape. The Bible is an inexhaustible well for our growth. The more you press into it, the more God uses it for our good. You can't outpace it. You can't reach the end of what he has in it for you. And so follow me here. That means that the regular and faithful proclaiming of God's word, the steady week in and week out reading and preaching of the scriptures, it doesn't just create God's people. It also sustains God's people. It does both. It creates his people and it sustains his people. We are not messengers unattached to the message. We are formed by his word and we feast upon his word. Opening up the scriptures whenever we gather together as a church. It's, it's not just a periphery thing we do. It's not one option of a, of a bunch of really good other things that we ought to consider for our time together. It is the diet by which God has prescribed for his people. It's what he has called us to be fed by. 
So a natural question flows out of that. What's the shape of that diet? Is it, is it more the Atkins variety? Or is it, were you doing the South Beach thing? Like, what does our diet look like? Right? What, is that, what is that the shape of our diet? It's one thing to say that the word is necessary. It sounds really good to say we give it the primary part of our time together. We give it primacy, but like very real practical questions flow out of that. Like, for instance, how much scripture should we read? If a pastor is going to preach, how long should he preach? Right? And I think this is where our measuring sticks can help us. I think this is where our, our, our guardrails can help us kind of figure out some of the practical things. If we're going to lean towards biblical ideal over pragmatism, right, then, then I think that we, I think we, that we try to squeeze as much in as we can, right? We don't have to be legalistic or ridiculous about it, but a posture that celebrates squeezing in just a little bit more when we're able to, that sounds healthy. Sounds like a good thing to chase after. At the same time, if we're going to lean towards what builds up the body rather than draws a crowd, then I think that means that, we, that we're reading and preaching on texts that lead us to walking in maturity with Jesus rather than what might be interesting to your non-religious friend. Even if the texts end up being a little awkward sometimes, you know, like purely hypothetical situations of walking through, I don't know, say Proverbs and coming to a spot where a father tells his sons to stay away from adulterous women. Purely hypothetical, though. That'll, that'll never happen here. Listen, it is in those moments. It is in those moments where we prove whether we actually trust that God's word is good and sufficient or if we secretly believe that we've got to rescue God's PR from what he said. Right? That's a rubber meets the road moment for us. So do we trust that? But we can keep going. We proclaim God's word in our gathering because he, it creates us as his people. We proclaim God's word in our gathering because it sustains us as his, as his people. Now look at chapter 4. All right, so there are no chapter breaks in Paul's original letter. This is all one thought. All right, and so uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 1, Paul says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So Paul's in prison right now. He's awaiting the time of his execution. Listen, for being a preacher of the gospel. Right? And so Paul, Paul has walked this pathway, and he writes a final letter to his protege. The letter In the first letter he writes him, 1 Timothy, he calls him my true child in the faith. He kind of likes the kid. Right? He wants all kinds of good for this young man. Paul loves and wants the deepest of possible joys and future for Timothy. He's walked the pathway of proclaiming God's word for the last however many years, and now he's about to be put to death for that very thing. And instead of warning Timothy to you know, avoid getting caught like he did, he instead rolls out the most weighty and solemn language in the entire Bible. He says, I charge you. I command you. In the presence of God and in Christ Jesus. They're watching, Timothy. They're watching you. You know the one who judges the living and the dead? You know the one who, that appeared in the flesh and then rose again from the dead? 
You're the one whose kingdom will last forever and ever and ever. Amen. Those guys, they're watching you, Timothy. I charge you. I command you in their presence. Preach the word. Proclaim it. The man who is facing execution for that very crime tells his son in the faith to hit the gas pedal harder. Give him some more, Tim. Give him some more. The proclamation of the word is everything to you. Hit the gas pedal. And then he tells them this in verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to, tr- to the truth and wander off into myths. Verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul says that people are going to run this way, and people are going to run that way, and they will, quote, accumulate teachers for themselves. So what does that mean? What's that about? It means that appetite will rule the day. People will be led by their stomach. Regardless of what might actually be true and life-giving to them, people instead will chase after whatever suits their passion. They'll turn away from the truth and they'll happily embrace myth. Not, Not because the myth actually gives them anything of lasting value, but because the myth provides them with a very convenient route to pursue what it is they're really after, the exaltation of themselves. You may not have ever paid attention to this reality in our world, but I'm of the opinion that the philosophies that spread the fastest in our culture are always the ones that make us out to be some kind of innocent victim and someone or something outside of us to be the bad guy suppressing us, standing in our way. It comes in a thousand different flavors, but it always has that same rotten core. This is why the prosperity gospel has an audience. This is why Disney princess movies keep getting made. And this is why we see entire groups of people be categorized as either guilty or innocent based on what identity class they happen to be born into. We need a scapegoat to blame for our problems. It doesn't matter what the truth actually is myth will be wholeheartedly embraced whenever appetite is in charge. We'll nod our heads and we'll play along with the most ridiculous of fables so long as the stomach can use it to leverage for what it really wants. Paul warns Timothy here, in their day and age, he's going to have to navigate that nonsense. There's nothing new under the sun. We deal with it too, right? But notice here. Notice here that instead of giving Timothy some some tips about how to creatively speak into their myth-loving culture, Paul instead tells him to be sober-minded. Think clearly, Timothy. Keep your head about you. 
Tells them to continually do the work of an evangelist. Speak winsomely into this culture. Never, never falling victim to this culture, but try to win people out of this culture, Timothy. Tells them to endure the suffering that's going to come with being the only guy in the room not lovingly embracing the myth. It's coming. And finally, Paul tells Timothy to fulfill his ministry of faithfully proclaiming the word of God. But why would that matter, right? It doesn't just feel like a giant waste of time. Why would Timothy need to keep proclaiming truth in a world that prefers the myth? I think it's because people need a place to crash land when their myth finally fails them. Despite what they try to sell us in their make-believe happily ever afters, myths always eventually crash and burn. Reality has a way of kind of poking holes in them all the time. Myths don't ultimately last so long. And yeah, people will race on to the new myth. Some may fall away between now and then. But when the myths of our own cultural moment finally meet their expected end, truth can be there to cling to. And so even though there may be some that fall away, for the ones who remain, they get to avoid the nonsense. Seems like a more fun place to live. We've seen that the faithful proclamation of God's word creates his people. We've seen that the faithful proclamation of God's word sustains his people. And I think we see here that the faithful proclamation of God's word secures his people. Secures his people. There's a good, God-given guardrail for running our race well. And so Paul tells Timothy, hey man, I completed my race. I'm done with this. God used it as he saw fit. Now I get to be, go be with the one whose word and authority I spent my entire life proclaiming. And I don't know about you, but it seems to me like Paul couldn't be happier with the result. The man awaiting his execution is happy with how things turned out. So what do we do with this? Right? I mean... We're not sitting in a mamertine prison waiting our execution. Timothy wasn't either. So what do we do with this? How, how, how do we respond to God's word this morning? A word about his word, right? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is pretty clear, right? We, we love him for what he has seen fit to give. And, and, and listen, I think we then order our lives and our activities as a church in such a way that tries to get as much of that good gift from him as possible. Give me more. We lean into it and we trust the value and sufficiency of his word, even when it seems counterintuitive to us, especially when it seems counterintuitive to us, even when uh, the myth-loving culture around us would rather have and believe something else. We cling to it because we know that that's where life is found. We find ways to get as much as possible. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's an opportunity for, for us to put action to whatever God might be stirring in your heart. Listen, if you want somebody to talk to you about it, I'll be down front here. 
you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm glad you're hanging out with us today. And I'm glad you pressed in this far. Uh, I think you can respond to God's word too. And I think you do that by meeting Jesus. The word he gave us, his word, it teaches us that by default, all people everywhere are separated from God because of our sin and that, that the right and appropriate punishment for that sin is death, forever separation from God. But the Bible also teaches, his word also teaches that God made a way where there was no way. The eternal Son of God came, He put on flesh, and He dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I am capable of living, and He died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead, vindicating His righteousness. It's perfect and sufficient. That's good news. You can be thankful that God has given you his word to let you know that, but now you need to do something with it. And so now the, the king who conquered sin and death calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. I'd love to be helpful to you. I'll be down front. But whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond to his word this morning, let's respond together now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for last chance words in a tear-filled letter. Thank you for preserving a somber and noble charge to a young preacher. God, I'll confess, there are times that I hold your word at arm's length, and I know it's important, and I know it's probably got some good things for me, but surely I can figure this out on my own. Surely I can handle my business. But I am malnourished. I'm blind to my own sickness. And would you create in me a desperate love for your word? Cause me to hunger for it and to find my satisfaction in it. Whether it be meal or snack or somewhere in between, would you give me more? you unite us together as a church family under the banner of your word. May we proclaim it well. Yes, because you have authority and the king has declared things that need to be repeated. But also because by it we live. So God, would you create your people and would you sustain your people and would you preserve your people here? By your word those responsible in our church family for reading and preaching it, love it even more. And never have a better idea. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known? Would you use your word today to light some people up? Wield that sword of yours. Change hearts. Call people to yourself. Let us get to celebrate with them that you've saved people for yourself. 
We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.